Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Oliver Berkman about the new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. The average human lifespan is absurdly, insultingly brief. Assuming you live to be 80, you have just over 4,000 weeks. Drawing on the insights of both ancient and contemporary philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers, Oliver Berkman delivers an entertaining, humorous, practical, and ultimately profound guide to time and time management. Oliver, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. So I would like to start by asking, how has this pandemic influenced you and your work? And at this stage, what is your new normal? (laughs) Well, the pandemic influenced this book that I wrote uh, about time in a couple of important ways. One is to do with the content of the third part of the book, which was what I was writing uh, when the pandemic hit. But the other was kind of as an amazing anti-procrastination measure, Um, not not because of this myth that we suddenly had lots more time in lockdown, which I don't think was true for many people. It maybe was true for some, but just because I thought to myself, like, there was a moment then when lots of people thought the publishing industry wouldn't might not survive, you know, for a few weeks in 2020. And that really lit a fire underneath me because I thought, <laughs> I want to get this book done and get the payment that I'm going to be paid for having finished it before the world's uh, publishing industry collapses. It didn't. They've actually thrived. Books have done really well in the uh, pandemic. And then the other thing is... Um, Although I didn't really feel like this was a pandemic-motivated decision, we moved from Brooklyn, New York, to the countryside in North Yorkshire in the north of England. Uh, and so I have a radically different lifestyle now. And I think probably looking back at it, we are just another data point, another one of these you know, people who relocate to rural areas uh, as a result of the last couple of years. It didn't feel like that was our motivation, but but here I am. So... <laughs> And what about traveling? Did this impact your uh, business trips, for example? 
Yes, I mean, I guess it did. I, 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 it wasn't that I was doing a huge amount of travel uh, before. It, it, there was family travel to go back and see family and friends in the UK that uh, that didn't happen, and I wasn't obviously wasn't able to travel. So uh, probably more of this, more of my writing was based on sort of uh, reading and introspection and phone conversations than than sort of in person reporting. That's probably always been true for me, though. I'm kind of I, I've always focused a bit more on the ideas than the than the reportage. So, um, yeah, a little bit of that. Um, I have to say there were many, many strangely, ironically positive things that have come out of this last couple of years for, for me personally, just in terms of being obliged to spend so much more time in a local neighborhood, first of all, in Brooklyn and now in Yorkshire, being obliged to spend, you know, time out in nature and outdoors uh, and a lot more time, I think, with my young son than I might otherwise have done. So, um, you, you know, one feels a bit guilty saying it, but uh, I think there have definitely been positives. Yeah, there's a bit of silver lining, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yeah. So can you tell us more about yourself? Huh, well, I could do this in 20 seconds or five hours probably, but anyway, just I'll do the 20-second one and then you can ask me more if you need to. Um, uh, I... Um, I'm British. I'm 46 years old. I was born in Liverpool and grew up in the north of England, near near where I'm living now. But um, spent most of my career as a so far as a journalist for the Guardian newspaper and some other publications. Uh, first of all, writing news stories and uh, daily features and things like this, and gradually sort of moving into this focus on psychology and philosophy. I wrote this column. Uh, for the Guardian's Saturday magazine for 12 years, I think. Uh, goodness. <laughs> uh, which was called This Column Will Change Your Life. This is a hopefully sardonic title that was um, covered sort of self-help culture, productivity, uh, the science of happiness, all these sorts of topics. And then I, I stopped that uh, a couple of years ago now. Um, and I've written, I've had three books one was a collection of columns that then I wrote a book called the antidote uh, about the problems with positive thinking and the benefits of negative thinking and then just recently I wrote this published this book 4,000 weeks time management for mortals which is about uh, sort of what happens when you confront uh, the, the our limitations how short our lives are and um, how little control we have over them and how you can actually use that as the basis for uh making better use of your limited time on the planet. How's that? <laughs> yeah, it's great. So did you always want to be a journalist? I mean, almost, yes. I think I had a very one-track thought about this from, from very early on. You know, I was um, I was definitely a, a kid into, um, into writing and reading rather than, rather than soccer, you know. You know, you know the kind, um, and uh, I grew up with a newspaper uh, on the breakfast table every every day, uh, and um, yeah, I think even by sort of the age of what, probably eight and nine, primary primary school, I was like making the, and photocopying little new so called news publications that I was making my classmates. Uh, I don't know. I was I was putting it in their hands anyway. I don't know if anyone ever read it, uh, and then and then doing that with other um, students at high school and 
co-editing the newspaper at my university and la la la. So it was really sort of, um, yeah, almost monomaniacal in a way. <laughs> it's strange because I think that people sometimes think, and it's, you know, there's a benefit. Sometimes people say to be a really good journalist, you should have a whole life first, you know, you should go, you should be doing something else and then you should move into, into writing about things. But, but actually writing about things has been my, my vehicle for doing them rather than a sort of um, sequel to, to doing them, if that makes sense. And how did you get interested in uh, psychology and even philosophy as well, thinking about these deep topics? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I didn't study, uh, I've never studied philosophy or I barely studied psychology in a formal setting. So it's all sort of just following my my interests. I definitely have a sort of, I, I, I read a book by a, um, a philosopher a while ago who made this, who characterized this idea of people who either do or don't have um, philosophical problems, meaning that, you know, even from a, even from an early age, it sort of bothers you to think about like, well, how can the universe be infinite? And also how could it not be infinite? And how could, you know, what does it mean that you know, all, all these kind of questions, not that you have great wise answers to them when you're uh, 12 or something, but that they do sort of gnaw at you somehow. I've definitely been one of those people. Um, this writer, Brian McGee, was, I think, also making the point that you, you, you get some academic philosophers who don't appear ever to have had philosophical problems as people, which uh, may lead to a different kind of problem. But um, so my, yeah, I've always sort of interested in these things and, and thinking things through on, on an abstract level or a level of principles and first principles. Um, and as for writing about this stuff, I, um, I just... You know, I was lucky gradually in the context of being a writer of longer pieces to be able to move things in the direction of just what I really wanted to write about. Um, when it came to psychology and self-help, an editor at The Guardian just noticed that I was read, always reading these books, you know, and self-help books as well, quite frankly, not just um, not just respectable philosophy, uh, psychology and philosophy, <laughs> but the other kind um, for my own interest, because I would quite like to be more productive or happier or whatever. Um, and she very, uh, wisely thought that if I was going to be reading all these things anyway, she might as well get some content out of that. So the column was, uh, initially her idea. And since then, I've just been really lucky to broadly speaking, be able to make a living from following my interests as it were, which is probably more amazing than I sometimes realize. And what would you say to our uh, younger listeners and students who might be considering um, a career in journalism? I mean, I don't think of myself as an elderly person in my mid-40s, but it is astonishing how much this sector has changed since I was coming up. So my first thing to say is that I really am not sure that I have anything to say. You know, when my first years at The Guardian, the internet was there, but it was on one terminal in the newsroom and like if you needed to use the internet and it wasn't in use you could go and use the internet um so i, I yeah i think i got an email address at university in the last year at university something like that but i didn't sort of check it most weeks so you know that's where i'm coming from here i i do think that one of the things that has changed in a very positive way is that if you want to write um about anything really and you have the bandwidth and the time to do it sort of for free onto Twitter, onto a blog, something like that, 
I, not everyone does have that bandwidth. Um, there's a certain amount of privilege involved there. But if you do have that that bandwidth to do that, um, there is every possibility now of your going viral and being discovered and getting past the um, sort of original gatekeepers who could cause so many problems for getting started in this world. And you will find, if it goes well, you will find doors opening. You'll find that you can point to a list of a sort of accumulated body of published things. So my advice is always, if you want to be a, a, any kind of journalist or, or writer for the public in that way uh, later in your life, just, just be it now in some way. Um, begin doing the thing because the best case scenario in the in the online world is that is that very great things will happen to you. And the worst case, if you write a bad article, is not that you will be held up for public humiliation uh if it's just sort of mediocre you know but that it will sink without trace and nobody will see it okay no problem do another one so um i think this is probably a very exciting time for people wanting to get started like that at the same time staff jobs at newspapers and magazines are probably in the sort of worst situation that they've uh, that they've ever been since the invention of the printing press but um yeah things change i suppose so your latest book is 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And how did you come to writing it? Well, I think, you know, both the books I've written, you could just retitle them um, kind of uh, my my life philosophy right now, uh, except that that wouldn't be a good title and no one would read the book. But you know what I mean? It's it, I've been able, both times I've written full-length books, to be able to just um, find a, a framework in, in which to write what I hope is a sort of general outlook on the world based on the previous years of writing this column and reading and talking to people and writing other stuff and traveling around. So this is just sort of, in some sense, the latest iteration of that. I think the specific um, course of events that led me there was that I had spent a lot of time writing this column and just in my personal life trying to master my time, you know, trying to deal with the problems of overwhelm and busyness and not feeling like I was focused on the things that mattered the most, however hard I tried and all those usual problems with time. And I had tried an enormous number of systems and techniques that were supposedly going to bring me um, lasting tranquility and peace of mind. And they'd all failed. And then this book is sort of what lies on the other side of that. It, it's the product I, I think of a sort of a kind of positive sense of the word uh, disillusionment, right? It's, um, it, it's sort of losing an illusion that I was going to find one really cool time management technique that was going to um, make me capable of meeting every demand and fulfilling every ambition and, and all the rest of it. So, uh, it was after I'd got to that point that I could set off on the, the exploration about time and how best to use it that, that is in this book. You're putting into wo words what everybody has on their minds. <laughs> so uh, let's delve yeah. into some of the topics that you cover in the book then. Okay, uh, go for it. Or I can, yeah. Yeah, so the first question I actually had, I suppose it's a very easy one. Why is there never enough time? <laughs> well, it's very easy. And then at the same time, it's like it's the whole problem, right? I mean, 
there are lots of answers to this that have to do with capitalism and have to do with modernity and have to do with technology. But right back at the root, uh, the kind of thing that even Seneca understood, you know, long before any of those uh, catalyzing forces was, <clears throat> I think, simply that we have this uh, this finite number of years on the planet, weeks, whatever have you want to express it. We don't know how long it'll be, but we know it will be finite. And yet we are capable as conscious human beings of conceiving of um, the infinite, basically. There's no limit to what we can feel we want to do. There's no limit to what we can feel is something that matters or that calls to us, that is our duty or that would be pleasurable. So there's just this baked in mismatch between our finite time and the infinite sense of things that we could or or should do. So, uh, you know, you start from this fact that there's simply no reason to believe that everything you want to do with your life will fit into your life. Um, and then there are all sorts of other forces that sort of encourage you to, to want even more from your life. And that, I think, is what technology and to some extent our economic system does, right, to make it feel like you've got to do even more. But right back at the beginning, there's just a mismatch between being material, finite creatures and and being capable of wanting, desiring uh, an infinite um, quantity of, uh, of activity and of life and of experience. And where does the title come from? Well, 4,000 weeks is, is very approximately the average lifespan in the West expressed in, in weeks. It's very approximate because I was blatantly going for the, the round number. You know, but if you live to be to your late seventies, that that's what you'll have had. And if you live to be eighty, it'll be just a, a, f a few more, really, than than four thousand weeks. I think there's something really striking about expressing it in weeks as opposed to other ways of doing so. Because, well, the way I think of it is, if you express lifespan in in years, as we usually do, you don't get very many years, but a year feels like it goes on for ages and ages and ages. So it doesn't seem to matter so much that you don't get so many. If you express it in days, that'll be a huge number. Um, but it's really easy to just waste a day. You know, I feel like that happens That happens still this today to me all the time. Um, and so weeks are very strange because on the one hand, you don't get very many of them like years. But on the other hand, it's really easy to waste them like days. So I think it's sort of, puts the pressure on a little bit to express it in those terms. Now, what I hope is that the book is not a source of pressure. I think the book, I hope, is a source of liberation and relief, but the title is fairly blatantly designed to uh, startle people <laughs> a bit. Yes, for sure. It's a really interesting way of looking at this, and uh, you can roughly estimate it's a thousand months as well, isn't it? Right. Yes, exactly. And how did it make you feel when you calculated it? <laughs> well, as I write in the book, I had some sort of minor panic attack when I first calculated it. But, um, uh, you know, and then I also say I went around sort of asking my friends to come up with what they thought the number was. And I was, I was, I said, like, don't do any, don't do the sums in your head, just, just off the top of your head. And obviously people give these kind of, you know, six figure numbers of weeks when you ask them what a life is in in weeks, they say 150,000 or 200,000, something like that. And, um, uh, and as I also say, you know, human civilization since Mesopotamia is about 300, 310,000 weeks long. Like it's not lots. It's very, 
short. But um, but there is a sort of, um, we can go into this more, but there is a kind of a important source of relief here as well, I think, which is that it's sort of so arrestingly finite, this number, that if you can understand that some of the things you've been trying to do with time and some of the ways you've been trying to conquer your time um, sort of presuppose the opposite, that they're as if you had all the capacities and all the time in the world, then actually being reminded of your sort of non-negotiable finitude is is quite helpful in a way because you can't, um, it becomes much harder to sort of um, maintain this stressful illusion that one day you're going to become super optimized, omnipotently capable of everything you need to do, get your life in working order. It's like, no, this is the human situation. It's not your fault <laughs> or the fact that you haven't put enough self-discipline in yet or something like that. It's just baked in to who we are. And I think that can help trigger a sort of a, a different way of, of relating to time. So what does this uh, term finitude mean? Well, I have my own meaning. It's funny, uh, quite a few people seem to think that I coined it or something. Uh, and of course I didn't. Uh, I don't even think uh, uh, Heidegger or Heidegger's English translators, I suppose, um, did so. But I just, I'm using it really as a, broadly as a synonym for sort of finiteness. Um, I think of it as being this sort of defining fundamental fact about our situation that it is defined by being finite finite both in the amount of time that we have because nobody knows how much time they're going to have but they know for certain that it's going to be a finite amount and also a finite degree of control over how that time unfolds um starting with the fact that you're born at a time and a place in history and and a at a social position and all the rest of it that you didn't have any choice in whatsoever. And then uh, continuing with the fact that you're just sort of carried forwards, aren't you on, on the, on the river of time, whether you like it or not, you can't, you can't pause it. Um, you can exert only limited influence over what happens to you in that time. Uh, um, pandemic is a reminder of that if, if anything is. Um, and so all of this just sort of adds up to this situation called, finitude and i think that a lot of our worst habits when it comes to time and the time management techniques that fail us and make things worse are all to do with trying to emotionally avoid this fact of our finitude that there are ways to feel like we are not finite when in fact we inescapably are so you already mentioned uh, seneca uh, talking about uh, topics uh, like a limit of life so when did our ancestors first start thinking about this Well, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question in the broadest sense, and 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 Seneca is is proof that you know, it's at least uh, you know two and a half millennia uh, that people have been articulating in writing the the um, the sort of consequences of of finitude. I'm pretty sure that I don't see any I don't see any reason to believe that that, that the idea of uh, being finite in some sense could not have occurred to you know the earliest humans with the cognitive equipment to to do so what i think is really interesting and we don't need to focus on this if it's not what you were getting at but is that 
the idea of responding to finitude by trying to master time, by trying to become more efficient, by trying to harness time and pack more into it and all the rest of it. The, the idea that if we can't live forever, we can at least do an infinite amount in the time we have, which is almost the same thing. Um, that is very new, I think. That is primarily a function of the post-industrial uh, world. And I argue in the book that many, many pre-industrial people would not have had the concepts to um, to get stressed out by time in this way. It's not that they didn't realize that they died. Um, it's that they they didn't think of time as something separate from them that they could that they were sort of involved in a struggle with that they could succeed or fail in um sort of getting the most out of um uh, that they could waste or uh or use or use wisely or let alone sort of you know sell for money so i think all of that has which makes a lot of this a lot more um uh anxiety producing that's a modern that's a modern idea it is truly fascinating to think about how we actually came around to to understanding the finitude of self isn't it because people and our ancestors they always were surrounded by death they could see somebody dying but mm -hmm. understanding that you're going to die that's another thing yeah there's a yes there's a great passage famous passage in the the mahabharata the um the sanskrit epic that um about uh where one character asks another you know what, what is the most miraculous what is the most uh wondrous fact in the world or something like this i'm paraphrasing i apologize um and the answer is that the most wondrous thing in the world is that everybody every day sees countless beings go to the place of death and never believe it's going to happen uh to them and maybe eventually you have to sort of resort to i don't like to particularly but maybe you have to sort of resort to evolutionary psychology a bit here and say that um there are some fairly obvious advantages to uh not to thinking that you're invincible because then you might not protect yourself in when you needed to, but to, to, to sort of, um, to not realizing in a very clear conscious way, how sort of totally insignificant you are in the, in the course of the cosmos that, and how perhaps there would be, you know, you can see that, um, a certain degree of, uh, thinking of yourself as a bit more godlike and a bit less animal like, uh, would be uh would be sort of helpful for thriving in the uh in our sort of original evolutionary situation i don't know i'm speculating but yeah it's really really interesting because it, it, it's at once so obvious and at, and at the same time so possible to go through months and years of your life sort of as if it wasn't true do we know if we're unique uh, in animal kingdom who understand the finitude I mean, I think we're going to have to be pretty close to unique, right? I don't know. Uh, it's it's a, it's either either the answer is yes or like I don't know some other higher primates and maybe the dolphins. I, I mean, I, this is not my this is not my area of expertise, but I would have thought that um, a certain kind of conceptual uh, and temporal thinking is 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 pretty essential. I think that um, uh, you know you have to be able to conceive of the future, and then you have to be able to um think about the fact that in one sense the future goes on forever but in another sense your body can't go on forever and then you approach the 
then you approach the uh, mismatch and, and that's when you, you get into it. So, I mean, I, I guess we don't know enough about, or I don't know enough for sure about um, some sort of close human cousins to know if that's, if we're unique, but that's, that's my suspicion, certainly. Excellent. So we just set up a nice philosophical base. So <laughs> let's come back to the present. And what do you understand by a contemporary time management and also productivity? Well, I mean, I, I suppose I'll answer that by talking about what I consider to be the defining features of that culture as it really is now, mainly that I'm sort of trying to um, subvert in some way. Uh, and that to sort of um, caricature perhaps a little bit is focused on this notion of trying to achieve a feeling of and perhaps a situation of control over your time so that you you run the show you don't need to feel uh insecure or vulnerable about your position with respect to time or you have won the battle with time if that's the way you want to phrase the the metaphor um and that the the main way of doing this for for years and years, you know, dating back to the Industrial Revolution in a way that then got transferred into knowledge work has been by, uh, through efficiency improvements, right? So if you can do more in the same amount of time, then you create space, so the story goes, to fit in uh, additional things and you can sort of, uh, you can you can keep pace with, uh, with the demands either of your society, your organization, the economy, or just of your own ambitions, right? These don't necessarily need to be sort of onerous, unpleasant outside demands. They could be the demand of what you consider it would mean to realize your potential or something like that. Um, but the way to do this is to is to cut out the, uh, the unimportant stuff, to automate that, to have it uh, to um, somehow just get rid of the things in your life that are not important and then to become so efficient at doing the things that are important that you can do all of the ones that feel like they matter. Anyway, I, I object to all, all, pretty much all those premises, but, but I think that's I should stop there right now in order to answer your question and not another one. And how does productivity fit into that? Because uh, I can't really see d the direct correlation of time management and productivity. You can be very productive in a very short amount of time and completely waste your time uh, for eight hours, for example, with a very low productivity level. Yes, well, there's a little bit of a semantic thing here where productivity has also become a label uh, for um, uh time management just bit so personal productivity and time management just become sort of meaning meaning the same thing but i think you're absolutely right if you drill down into what productivity means and you know in my understanding of its sort of original macroeconomic meaning we're talking about the creation or capture of additional value and and uh, the productivity related to time would be to do with how much of that value you can create or capture in in in, a, in how short a time then yes, you have to look at a lot of time management and a lot of personal productivity uh, advice and say that it that it doesn't have an obvious relationship with with that um, adding of value. I think that it's probably true. I don't have this data on the on my fingertips, but I think it's probably true to say that the the that the growth in productivity uh, techniques and books and things like that have, has not been uh, particularly correlated with a surge in in macroeconomic productivity in the places where 
that those kind of ways of thinking have been uh, heavily promoted. Um, and yeah, absolutely. At the the core of it is when we when we put aside the sort of macroeconomics and just look at the sort of question of living a meaningful life, um, getting really efficient with at, at processing tasks is not the same thing as spending your time on the most important tasks. And actually, I argue in the book, it's in some ways it's the opposite. That if you get what happens if you make your sort of personal system uh, of your own of yourself and your work, you know hyper efficient uh all else being equal you'll you'll get busier and you'll get busier with more kind of junk tasks because you, you know your your belief that you can handle everything will cause you to um will cause you to uh do take on more and more um things that that are not actually that important to you and that you can't afford to do with the limited time that you have so how did our society sort of come down to thinking about time and productivity in this way? I mean, again, this is a question that could be answered on a million levels. I'll pick out two that I think that I think are important. One is one is the sort of transfer of ideas that were very helpful for improving the efficiency of machines in the Industrial Revolution that were then transferred in the work of Frederick Winslow Taylor and others into the humans who worked in those factories. And, you know, you get these kind of slightly absurd phase of so-called scientific management where people are studying men with clipboards, are, you know, studying the, the arm movements of bricklayers and uh, assembly line workers to see if they could like position them so that they don't have to move their arm quite so much and they could do it, move it twice as frequently in a three second period than before, all this stuff. And that kind of works in that realm as long as by works, we don't mean anything to do with the well-being of the workers, as long as we only mean um, the sort of brute output of those systems. And then you get it, um, that same idea transferred into uh, uh, white-collar work, not not long after um, a lot of these original changes, I mean, on a, in the scheme of things, not that long after. Uh, and then you also get this this very powerful computer metaphor, as as compute as um, you know, the electronic era begins, uh, that where again an another place where um, both increased efficiency uh, in terms of how computers work and multitasking in terms of how computers work both seem like they could probably be applied to humans, and in crucial ways, I think cannot be applied to humans. And then I said there were two things here. The other one is just like what's the reason i think the reason is because of this whole area since since um since the industrial era we now have this whole new way at our fingertips of trying to deny our finitude right i mean we've always done it to some extent in this way and that but now we have this whole vision of the technological conquest of time uh not that it's going to make us live forever literally although that's now something that some people in Silicon Valley uh, will get quite excited about if you ask them, but that we could sort of on an emotional level and, and effectively we could, we could defy uh, our finitude by there being no limit to the things that we could do in the time that we do have. So if I can do a million things before I die, that's a little bit similar to living, living forever, right? Because um, Emotionally speaking, I don't have to confront the fact that, you know, there are hard choices to be made, that I can't do everything, that um, that some of my ambitions at least are going to have to be
be abandoned. All that stuff, you, you don't need to worry about it if you really could optimize yourself uh, to a sort of, in a sort of limitless way. So I think, you know, it's the same old denial of death on some level, uh, taking advantage of new, new technologies and, and, and concepts to, uh, to, to really, you know, up the denial levels. <laughs> so you say that some of the aspects of our uh, life is like a conveyor belt. So can you give a few examples of that? Yeah, I, I bring up this conveyor belt comparison, which comes from the American anthropologist Edward Hall, um, just because I think it's one very good way of visualizing how we've come to think about time in this in this sort of way that it is separate from us, alienated from us. It's not it's not just who we are, but but a thing that sort of runs alongside our lives somehow, or that we're running on in our lives, and we have to try to uh, keep up. So Hall had this image that 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 time in the modern era is like a conveyor belt with sort of large and small containers on it that go past us you know the day days and hours are small containers and years are big containers whatever it begins to break down if you take it too literally but the point is they go past us and we have to like fill them as they come past and if we let the too many go on em or by empty we feel like we're wasting time and if we um fill all the containers easily we feel like we're we feel very virtuous and, and, and productive, uh, but there's always slightly too many containers to try to fill in the time. And that is the feeling of overwhelm and of busyness. Um, and whatever you make of the specific conveyor belt idea, what I think is so powerful about this is just that it's just that idea that there is you and then there is time and time rolls implacably on and you have to do something to try to keep up or get the most out of what's passing you by. Um, and there's an, the responsibility is on you to learn to run fast enough or to learn to fill the containers quickly enough. Um, and uh, I just think, you know, medieval people in the main would not have thought this way. They would have conceived of themselves, if they'd conceived of time at all, they would have conceived of it as, they would have conceived of themselves as a portion of time. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It gets very hard to put into words. Um not that there was this thing running alongside them that they had to uh, battle into submission, but that they just were a sequence of moments. And I think that while they had many, many worse problems, perhaps, in uh, the medieval period, uh, with that mindset, it's very hard to become sort of anxious and neurotically anxious about your time because it just doesn't make sense. You just, you're just in it and you just do the things that seem the most reasonable and necessary to do. Oh, that's a very painfully accurate metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that you're really interested in uh, all this self-help uh, self uh, literature, and many of us would be familiar with the optimization of life concept. So can you just describe what exactly does that mean? Optimization specifically? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it... I mean, I, I think there are sort of two parts to it, I suppose. And one of them is this specifically time-based idea that there are ways of making your life so um, so frictionless uh, in, the, in the modern parlance that you can do all the things that feel like they matter and you do this by eliminating all the things that don't really matter. And then the second part, that there's a sort of a list of things that if you, that if you place them into that time, uh, in the right way, uh, 
you have the sort of happiest and most fulfilled uh, life that that anyone could have. And one of the obvious problems with that, I think, is that if we start from this, you know, where we began in this conversation and say that there's just no reason to assume that you'll have enough time to do all the things that feel like they matter, you begin to realize that actually, at least this is my argument, good time management is a matter of deciding which things that matter you're going to neglect, as well as which things that matter you're going to do. You hear a lot in the world of self-help about how we have to learn to get better at saying no. Um, but uh, I quote in the book, the author Elizabeth Gilbert, who makes this point that we usually, when people say that, there's just this sort of backdoor assumption that what they mean is you have to say no, and then you can say no to all the things you didn't want to do, and then you'll have enough time to do all the things that you do want to do. And she says, no, it's much harder than that. You have to say no to things that you really, truly do want to do, because there are going to be more of them than uh, than you can do. So, you know, it, it, it's not that um, what gets in the way of you spending all the time you want to on your work and being a good spouse or a good parent or a good friend. It's not that the only problem there is that you also have to like clean your house and do various administrative tasks. So if you could outsource the cleaning and the admin, you could do everything right. It's that it's that there's too much. It's that it's that just the the stuff that really matters to you there, the work and the and the parenting and the and the being a good spouse. Like these things just there's too much of them. So you're going to have to decide where to make sacrifices. And you can, you know, people make sacrifices in different places, but they don't avoid making sacrifices. So I think that's really the point, right? If if we describe if we define a sacrifice as as something that you have to do without or let go of that really counts in and of itself. It's not just this sort of ephemeral, annoying chores that you'd love to get rid of. It's it's that you're going to have to sacrifice things uh, that you care about in order to make time for a few things that, that really count in your life. I hope that makes sense anyway. That's, that's my thoughts about it. So what would be sort of alternative approach and how we should be thinking about uh, our limited th uh, time? I mean, the basic idea that I'm sort of tracking here is that if you let this, um, if you let this sort of understanding of finitude permeate you a bit, if you realize that tough choices about time are inevitable, if you realize that um, you're definitely not going to get to do all the things that that you feel like you should do either with a life or with a day um then in a way the job is done right i do talk about specific techniques happy to discuss those but it's really just like oh okay i can put down that impossible burden of imagining that i was ever going to get to the end of any of this uh of ever imagining that i was going to walk away from my desk say at the end of the day thinking every single thing that had a good claim on my time today uh was dealt with And then when you let that go, it's really just a question of, uh, you know, uh, intuitively, really, what, what are, if I have eight hours for some work, you know, what, what are the most important ways to be spending that time today with no expectation of reaching this place of everything being completed, of nothing being neglected? Um, and so that's just sort of reality-based time management in, in my uh In my understanding, it's like, okay, almost nothing that counts will I get around to today. So therefore, uh, what am I going to choose? And very often, it doesn't even really matter that much what you choose, because if there are 10 
things that would all be very valuable ways to spend the next hour, then in a way, like you could almost toss a coin. Hmm. I love it. It's a complete change of the mindset, really. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of those uh, techniques that you can use? Well, I mean, I think above all, it is this um, uh, question of um, shifting the mindset. But when it comes to uh, specific techniques, anything that acknowledges this fact of finitude instead of that helps you deny it. So a really obvious example is when you're planning your day or your week or when you're just thinking about your daily time, anything that sort of goes... Um, that starts with the available time instead of the tasks you want to get through. And I'll say what I mean by that. So this is kind of fixed volume productivity. I've, I've called it and it's been called. Um, you, you can say, okay, there are eight hours available for work today, or okay, there are four hours available today when I expect to have enough energy and focus and lack of interruption to work on this really important stuff. Given that I have that block of time, uh, what will I do? Um, what, what, what's most important to sort of put into, uh, that, that time as opposed to the other way of doing it, which I think we're much more used to, which is to say, here's a list of things that just absolutely have to be done today and come hell or high water, I'm going to find a way to do them. Uh, because then you'll find that it's, you know, it's midnight and you're, and the list just got longer during the day rather than shorter. So I think anything that sort of takes time first there's an approach called time boxing which is just a very simple way of you know literally drawing boxes onto your calendar so that you so that you sort of assign stretches of time to specific tasks um uh that you know um that's a very simple one um there are other ways we can i, I can talk about them and there's a whole list of them in the back of the book but all of them just have this one thing in common which is that they start by acknowledging that um, your time is limited and you're not going to do most of the things that you could do today. And then they are just aids to choosing which things to do when instead of fueling this illusion. So now thinking about the bigger picture and perhaps uh, reflecting on uh, a bit of societal problems, what would be the key implications of uh, really thinking about these topics for our personal health, but also for uh, society at large? I mean, I think just on a personal level, <clears throat> because this is in touch with reality, <laughs> because it's how things really are, uh, there's a big um, lifting of a certain kind of burden of stress. I don't want to imply that people, ha I'm trying to make say people have to go through some big epiphany. I think this can be a gradual or a incremental shift, but, but there's a lot less stress associated with trying to do everything and a lot more freed up energy and focus on, to, to focus on, a smaller number of things that that count as for the societal level you know i'm at pains in the book i think to sort of try to stress that i don't think that we can solve all the problems that we have about people being overstretched and and feeling that their work lacks meaning and all that stuff this isn't just like a mindset shift where you think differently about it and then all our societal problems are, are gone lots and lots of policy changes i think could could have an important um impact in terms of in terms of sort of limiting the working hours that people are absolutely obliged to do just to get by and a strong social safety net and, and parental leave and all the things that you might expect, I think are consistent with that outcome. But there is also this very useful, I think that for as long as we're going to live in a world where lots of people have impossible demands 
placed upon them just because of our society and our economy um it's really useful for those people and this is all of us to some extent but definitely poorer people have it worst but it's definitely something really useful about on an individual level being able to see clearly that those demands are in fact impossible and if you're living in a society and it's making you feel like you ought to be you know spending uh, spending this amount of time at work and this amount of time being a good parent and and actually this adds up to more to more hours than it's possible for a human to give to them well it doesn't solve the problem but it does free you in a psychological sense from sort of collaborating with the problem uh so to give a very sort of low grade example from my relatively you know privileged position really um to understand that there's no reason why i should ever manage to get through all my email like maybe i will maybe i won't depending on how much i get but there's no baked in reason that says uh you know if somebody can send me an email then i must be able to find the time to respond to it um i haven't stopped the problem of overwhelm i haven't i haven't addressed the issue of email uh but um but i've freed myself up internally a little bit to make some choices right to say okay well look i'm going to give this many hours this week to email and see what i can do but i'm not going to imagine that um that i can automatically get through it so there's a great deal of in, in, internal freedom even in the midst of a sort of slightly impossible society from from doing this at the same time i think we you know to have a really temporarily healthy society uh we we'd certainly need to make some changes at the at the policy level as well i don't think it can all be done individually and what discoveries along your journey to writing your book for thousand weeks surprised you the most hmm what discovery surprised me the most um the whole thing was quite an interesting experience because on some level i think i knew what i discovered but not on an articulated level so um in some ways the big discovery was was just coming to appreciate how completely uh indentured i had been you know to this to this way of thinking even without quite realizing it at the time so there was a sort of personal discovery there i think the other thing that really struck me when i was uh doing the research for this book is both how many of these problems and how many of the most promising solutions can be laid at the door of of religion maybe this isn't very surprising because until a few hundred years ago you know all intellectual developments in the world basically happened under the umbrella of religion but i think that um certainly on the positive side you know the ways that um different religious traditions have for um imposing certain kinds of rhythm on on time so that you uh rest on the sabbath day even if the work is not completed in some sense because it will never be completed but you have this this um this sort of somewhat imposed moment when even if it isn't completed you have to stop that's one example um ways in which religious traditions bring people together uh, and coordinate their time in ways that uh, we're losing i think broadly as a secular society uh because actually having your time well coordinated with other people is so important so constantly i seem to be sort of tracking religious ideas without ever quite actually becoming religious myself maybe maybe that's still to come <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I'm imagining that you're now a master of time management. So I was wondering, do you have any guilty time-wasting pleasures? Well, you imagine wrongly because uh, this is a constant work in progress. And I do, yeah, I'm sort of, I do try to sort of say this quite a bit because I think it's not helpful for people to believe that, um, that I live in a situation of total calm, no stress, never feel uh, overwhelmed or anything like that. I, I think I'm better than I was by a long way. But I was um, I was a particularly bad case of this. So even if I'm only okay now, that 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 uh, signifies a big improvement. I mean, to answer this question, what people usually mean by guilty pleasures of in terms of time use, I I embrace, and I think we should embrace them more. So if it's a guilty, uh, if it counts as a guilty use of time to sort of uh, sit at the electric keyboard piano that we have in our house and sort of play. Uh, play piano rock tunes badly, which I do when I just want to sort of totally relax, um, preferably with headphones to spare my family. Uh, um, I think that that kind of thing, everyone should have that in their lives, something that they're not particularly good at necessarily, but it's just, it's just pleasure for itself in the moment because I think we, we've come to downgrade the idea of pleasure itself uh, in the moment too, too much as a result of our productivity obsession. If I mean actual guilt, like things I would like to change, then yeah, I am susceptible to sort of social media distraction with that slightly addictive edge that it has um, as, as anybody. I've found various ways to push back against it, but I haven't defeated it. So um, that I think most of the time truly is a waste of my time. Whereas lots of the things that we call time wasting, um, I think they're just not productive, but that's fine. Um, who said we were here to be productive. Yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> so this has been really a thought-provoking discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Yeah, I'm sort of feeling my way here. I have, I'm trying to pull together thoughts for a new book, but I, I'm not just being coy. I don't know. I, I, it's not that I won't talk about them, but that I don't have words for that yet, but I am trying to work on a new book. Um, I've been going around talking about this book a lot, which has been a wonderful opportunity. And I write this email newsletter every two weeks that I call The Imperfectionist. And that's been a real eye-opener, actually. That's a fascinating way of connecting with people, sort of sharing my thoughts in progress on some of these big issues and then getting such interesting feedback, often, I think, from people far smarter than me, quite frankly, you know, recommending books and things that I should read. So it's a it's a really interesting uh, sort of medium for pursuing uh, this, these kinds of ideas. And where would be the best place for our listeners to find more information about your work, your writings, and also your book? Well, the book, 4,000 Weeks, you can get wherever you uh, like to buy your books, ebooks, audiobooks. Um, and then my website, oliverberkman.com, We'll tell you about the book. There's a bunch of posts that I wrote for my newsletter there and you can sign up for the newsletter and all the other information is, is there, basically. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, the invitation.